As you can see, it's a communion Sunday. We have the uh, um, plates ready for us here at the end of our service. And uh, as my custom is, I'd like to take you into a passage re- uh, relating to what Christ has done for us. Isaiah 53, we've been on uh, now five times, counting today. So I'm going to encourage you to join me. Isaiah chapter 53 give you a minute to find the chapter, and then we will have a word of prayer. Isaiah chapter 53. Perhaps you have this chapter memorized. Maybe you don't. It would be worth your time. When I had uh, started a ministry in uh, Warsaw, Indiana, we challenged the folks, I challenged the folks to memorize this chapter, and every week I asked them, does somebody have it memorized? I could share. And it was amazing how many folks memorized Isaiah chapter 53. And uh, it's not very long. I encourage you to consider that. You're looking for something to do with your new year, right? That was a good challenge for you. Because I will promise you this. We're going to stay in this chapter every communion service till we complete it. And we're on our fifth time. And I have at least eight messages dealing with this. So... Uh, you can be sure throughout this entire next year, we're going to be in Isaiah 53 every time we come to our communion service. So, uh, let's uh, talk to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege of being here today. We've taken a few moments to open up our Bibles and turn to this passage that you have given to us. and We're mindful of several things in this act, Lord. Number one, you have given to us your word. And what a privilege it is to have it. Just to be able to hear the pages uh, turn as we go to a familiar passage, Lord. That it be familiar to us as a blessing that you have also given to us. That we have been brought up in your word. We know where to find the passages that we seek. We, we hear these words and they're familiar to us, Lord. And, and what a blessing that is considering those in our world, and there are those in our world, who have never even seen a copy of your word. But we've been blessed so thoroughly with it, Lord. Thank you for that. And thank you for the impact your word has had in our lives in changing us. That today when we approach you, as we spend time in your word, it's because we have have hungry hearts. We, We are those who have learned to feast on your word, and we have an appetite for it. And I thank you, Lord, for doing that in our lives, too. We are blessed people. And as we spend time in your word, we're even more blessed. And I pray today you might do your work, as you always do. But do your work in these hearts of ours. And draw us close to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. (laughs) Two times in, in my ministry of the last 24 years, I have been told to stop preaching in a certain passage because of the gospel message because of the presentation of of God's word what it says they they didn't want to hear one of those times was an elder of a church who told me to stop I'm not going to stop folks I didn't stop 24 years ago and I'm not going to stop today if you have an issue with what God says talk to him about it all right The the passage that we have before us here is not a pretty one on our side. 
the last couple of times we've been together, well, in the month of December, two of those messages, I, I shared with you the villains at Christmas. Uh, we talked about uh, Herod the king. We've talked about uh, the religious leaders as well. And we don't like those folks. We see them in scripture and, and uh, we, we almost want to boo or something when we see their name. Uh, but we certainly don't want to be numbered among them, do we? And yet, unfortunately, I, I think that's a very fitting place for us, considering the fact that uh, God is not silent about the, the, these words, that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins. This chapter, Isaiah 53, is a presentation of what it was that Christ died for. And in that, we get a very, very vivid picture of ourselves. And it, it, to tell the truth, it's rather frightening to me. To, to say, you know, Lord, I, I, knew, I knew I was lost. I, I knew I, I sinned. I knew I needed a Savior. But I just didn't know I was that bad. That's what I see in these words. And uh, if there's ever a time in our study of this chapter that we're walking into the holiest place on earth, it is today. When we consider what Christ has done for us. So I'm going to encourage you to follow me along as we go through here. So far what we have discovered in Isaiah chapter 53 is that we are sinful and we deserve God's wrath. We are rebellious and we refuse to listen to God's truth. And yet Christ came into our spiritually barren, morally depraved world. That's a miracle that he would even want to. But he did, didn't he? We've been celebrating that for the last month. Christ took our sins and our punishment. That's where we were a few months ago when we were meeting around this table then. He took our sins and our punishment. Now that's physical suffering. That was the primary thrust of that section is the, the physical suffering that Christ endured. Today we're going to look at another side of that suffering and I like to call it the mental, mental suffering of Christ. Mental suffering of Christ. And there's a third aspect that we're going to consider as well down the road. But the spiritual suffering of Christ. These are, are layers to the suffering that uh, at times we don't think about. For it would be very easy Considering that we've grown up knowing that we're sinners, we need a Savior, Christ died on the cross for our sins, He took them away. We can say that almost passively, can't we? Very casually bring that up and say, yeah, I, I sinned and Christ forgave me, and ta-da, off we go in our merry way. But when we consider the other aspects of His suffering as well, it's alarming to me. It really, truly is. That this is what I, I participated in. What we all did. What we all did. And so, today we're going to look at the, the, um, the ridicule and the abuse that Christ took as well on our behalf. And I'm just going to read through uh, six verses here. And they're not necessarily in, in sequence, but they are in order. Um, chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message, and to whom 
has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 2. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of a parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Verse number 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Verse number 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And verse number 12. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, he would divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. These six little verses describe the, the mental suffering, I picture, that was sent toward Christ, that he endured on our behalf. It's wrapped up in, in a handful of words, so I'm going to give them to you. Verse number one mentions the fact that he was insulted. Verse number two, he was humiliated. Verse number three, he was rejected. Verse number seven, he was abused. Verse number nine and twelve, he was shamed, insulted, humiliated, rejected, abused, and shamed are the words here. Those are the things that we call mental suffering. It's a contrast to the physical of striking and hitting and crushing that we saw before. But these, uh, these words are alarming. In verse number one, it says, who has believed our message? It's a question, folks. It's a question. Now, it's been a little while since I've uh, told any kind of children's stories, and poor Megan is my victim today. She was little. She wouldn't even remember this. But uh, one morning for breakfast, I'm pouring out Frosted Flakes for her, because she asked for Frosted Flakes, and she asked for more sugar. And I told her she didn't need any sugar. It was already on there. You have to trust me. And she says, but I'm not trusting you. <laughs> How many times are we just like that? But I'm not trusting you. Are, are we ever that open with our, our uh, lack of belief? In this message, there is a question. Who has believed our message? That's why Isaiah begins this entire section speaking of what Christ has done for us. Who has believed? Is there anyone who relies upon this message, who trusts in it, who understands it? Uh, Isaiah has a problem in this book. 
it's one that he had to contend with his entire ministry, and it's the kind of thing that makes you want to pull your hair out if you're the, the one presenting the truth. The people would not listen. They will not believe. That's Isaiah's entire ministry to a group of people who would not believe. Let me, let me just prove it to you a little bit here. And I'm going to walk through his book. Chapter 1. Chapter 1. Just a, a, I'll read you a section here and a section there, and we'll move through some, some highlighted portions of this book. <coughs> chapter 1. This is where Isaiah has to start in verse number 2. Since the people will not listen, he turns his attention to the skies and to the earth and to the heaven and says, maybe the earth will listen to me. Maybe the sky will listen to me. Notice how he begins this. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. He's calling these inanimate objects to testify and to actually listen because nobody on earth will. So he says, listen, for the Lord speaks. Sons, I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its master, a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again? As you continue in your rebellion, the whole head is sick from head, and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. There's a little picture in this, in the couple of verses that I just read to you. The Lord has, has inflicted punishment on them. He says, I've run out of places to hit you. I've hit you so many times. You haven't even heard me yet. Your land, in verse 7, is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts has left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams, of the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourself. Make yourself clean. Remove the evil from your deeds. From your, my sight, cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. You can sense already, as he even begins his letter, the relationship of these people with their God. 
They do not listen. They do not believe. Throughout this book, there's some absolutely strikingly beautiful sections of Isaiah as he describes the greatness of, of God, the glory of God, and the power of God. Isaiah 6 is a good chapter that it begins with Isaiah seeing the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filling the temple, and all the smoke and the angels shouting, Holy, 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 and all that beautiful scene of the glory of God. And then the Lord would say, Well, who's going to go for us? Who shall we send? And remember what Isaiah said? Pick me, right? Let me go. It says right there in Isaiah 6, verse 8. And the voice of the Lord said, Who shall send? Who shall go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And the Lord says, Okay, go. Tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of these people insensitive. Their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Wait, 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 wait. God, this doesn't sound right. (laughs) You're sending me out with a message to tell people, keep on ignoring. Don't listen. Go blind. Go deaf. Harden your hearts. That's it, yeah. How long? That's his next question. He, he got the idea. God was truly sending him out to a stubborn group of people to make them more stubborn. And this is what he says. How long, Lord? Verse number 11. Can you imagine that? If the Lord should call you into ministry this afternoon, all right? He says, okay, I'm going to send you out into ministry. Say, okay, all right, Lord, I'm, I'm willing to go. What do you want me to do? Go out and work with rebellious people that never believe a word you say. Um, is this a short-term ministry? That's what Isaiah was hoping for. This is God's answer. Verse 11. How long, Lord, he answered, until cities are devastated, without inhabitant, houses are without people, the land is utterly desolate, the Lord has removed men far away, the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Ouch. Until I'm done dealing with these rebellious people. Wow, that's heavy, isn't it? In the midst of the glory of God, we see the rejection of the people. We have another section as well. Isaiah chapter 40. This is one of my favorite places to go. Isaiah chapter number 40. Starts in verse number uh, 21. (coughs) Notice the same kind of questions are being raised again to these same people. Isaiah forty twenty one. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, who spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely have they their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me, that I would be his equal, says the Holy One? 
Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who has lead them forth, their hosts by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. To him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. You say, I like those last verses. Let's skip the rest. And let's just turn the last verses into a, a, a very encouraging message. He's dealing with people who will not come to him. They don't know him even though they have all the evidence of the world of his greatness. Just another chapter down or so, chapter 42, verse 5. So what does the Lord do with people like these? Thus says God the Lord. 42, verse 5. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it and the spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord... I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, to those who dwell in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. This is the ministry of Isaiah presenting the holy great glorified God before a people who will not believe it any wonder how he starts this chapter the most pronounced chapter in the entire book of what Christ has done for these people he has to start with that question who has believed a report. Now, if the Jews would know all this about God and still reject Him, wouldn't you call that insulting? What other word might there be that would really wrap that up well? As far as uh, standing in the, the shoes of our Savior... And to know why he came and for whom he came to live and die, to have them not believe him. That's an insult to the most holy God. And that's exactly what Isaiah has to start with first. The people who insulted him by not believing. This is a little message uh, in a commentary, a couple of thoughts for you. In Matthew, well, in Matthew chapter 27, we have standing at the foot of the cross those very chief priests and scribes and all the others who rejected him at his birth, remember, now hurling insults at him. You could read it sometime in Matthew 27. If you are the Son of God, come down. If you really do trust in God, 
Well, ask Him to save you. They were continually hurling that, those words before the Savior while He was there on the cross. The thieves, if you remember, joined in, right? And they also joined in that. Here He was, in His holy character, dying on our behalf, and yet being treated as if He was a liar. John Calvin said, No one will believe these things. We as ministers, let us groan and complain along with the prophet. Let us be distressed with grief when we see that our labors is unprofitable. Let us complain before God, for godly ministers must be deeply affected. If they wish to perform their work faithfully, Isaiah declares that there will be few that submit to the gospel of Christ. For when he exclaims, Who will believe the preaching? He means that those who hear the gospel, scarcely a hundredth person will be a believer. That was written quite some time ago. I wonder how well we've developed our ability to not believe since then. What a society we live in, huh? We were numbered among those people, weren't we? We were among that crowd. That makes, when I think of this communion table, that makes it so astounding to me that he should die for me when I was the one who insulted him with unbelief. Humiliated is the second word I gave to you. Humiliated. Here in Isaiah 53, we consider in verse number 2, He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to Him. You know, we put our estimation on the value of people today very much like they did in their day, I'm sure. Beautiful in face, beautiful in figure, who cares about the character? We like the outward appearance, don't we? That's the same thing you read in verse number 2. Verse number 2. He had no stately form, is the phrase that I read to you. Stately form. He's, he, he doesn't appear um, in physical appearances in that handsome form. There's nothing that marks him out. That's the root word here you're looking at. There's no elegance about him. It doesn't mean that he was homely or that he was ugly. He was just common. There was nothing unique that stood out about his appearance. They would have expected. Probably today we would too if we were waiting for a Messiah to enter into the room. They expected that he should have uncommon beauty in his face and person. He should charm with the eye, attract with the heart, and raise the expectations of all who saw him. That's how they picked their kings. If you go back in their selection of King Saul, you know why they liked him? He looked good. He was bigger than anyone else. So let's make him the king. They found out that was a bad idea. But that's our world today still, isn't it? We, we credit people with worse. If he's going to walk around and call himself God, shouldn't he have something on him that looks godlike? Right? That's, that's the way we approach this. We say, Where, where's the, the signs of deity on him? We're looking all over. How likely were you to find it with a baby in a manger? How likely were you to find it as he walked along the seashore, when he walked among the disciples, when he went out on the boats, when he was suffering on a cross? What appearance were we looking for? There were no regal robes. 
There's no pump. He was regarded, you will find in some of the passages of the Gospels, as an illegitimate son of a carpenter. When he preached, they questioned his authority. When he healed, he was associated with the devil. The logic was that we looked at his personal appearance, we found nothing remarkable. We looked for any adornment, decoration, ornament that spoke of splendor, honor, or respect. We could not see it. Therefore, there was no cause for us to be attracted to him, no reason to desire him. He had a low opinion made of him. People judging by the sight of eye, if his beauty could truly be seen, it was the beauty of holiness and goodness and godliness, which is, by the way, spiritually discerned. And these folks were not spiritually discerning, were they? Matthew Henry said these simple words, Carnal hearts see no excellency in the Lord Jesus. I think that's still true. I still see that among those who don't know him. They don't see the beauty. We just sang that beautiful name, didn't we? Why is it so beautiful? Because it sounds nice to say the words? Or because we know the one who wore the name? These folks didn't know him. Instead, they humiliated him on every turn. Humiliated. And yes, we were part of that crowd once, weren't we? We were once part of that crowd. In very thing we were looking for, he didn't measure up. Third word was rejected. Verse number three, he was despised and forsaken of man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, like one with whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Second time we were in this passage, I gave you the three R's of sin, which was rejection, rebellion, and depravity. Right? There is an R in there depravity. We see he's despised by men. Despicable is their opinion of him. Disdain, scorn. He was forsaken, it says. Abandoned. They left him. They deserted him. Remember passages like this? I just have to say the words and you could automatically think of a section, can't you? Of the life of Christ where they walked off. We did not value him. We're not preoccupied with him. We saw no purpose in him, thought nothing of him. Not only did we not consider him to be worthy of being looked at, but we turned away our eyes as if he was something despicable to look at. That's what it says right there, doesn't it? There was no stately form majesty that we should look upon him. We saw that in verse 2. Now he's despised and forsaken of men. And like one with whom men hide their face, he was despised. You ever see a, a person, because of some deformity, be so absolutely ugly you couldn't look at them? Frightening thing I remember when I was a, a youngster. My mom loved to go into nursing homes. She considered that a ministry, and she considered us to be partners in her ministry. We didn't really feel that way. But we'd go into nursing homes, and my mom would always make it a point to pick out those who nobody else would visit. And we as kids knew why nobody would visit them. One particular lady, I called her the pirate lady. I never said it out loud, 
but she can sound just like a pirate until you walk into the room and then she's singing Amazing Grace. And when you leave the room, she's back to pirate talk. There was another instance where she, my mom would have us go in and pass out little tracts to people. And I, I just felt, I'll just go in, hand it, come back out. And it, it was uh, a scene that just can't even leave my mind. Came up to a man. He appeared to be a man in this bed. His head was in the middle of the bed, and he had body on either side of it. I remember that. And when I, I, I didn't know if I should reach out that tract or not, but when I did, this arm came out from the bottom of the bed, reached up and grabbed it, and took it back down. It scared me to death. I left. I, I just had never seen anything like that in my, in my life. But we are like that, aren't we? If we find something to be so ugly to us, we turn our attention away from it. Do you see what they were saying about our Savior? They, they, like a man with whom one would turn his face, we despised him. We despised him. He's the one that the builders rejected. Peter says that, but Psalm says that too. We, we see these words and, and we say, this isn't a, a man of, of majesty. This is a man of sorrows. This isn't a man of power and strength. This is a man of grief. But let's ask this question. Whose grief is it? Do you remember? Can we look down the page and figure it out? Verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. When we were looking upon him and reflecting on him as that so despicable that I can't even look at it, he was reflecting us in the grief and in the sorrow. We were looking at the sin and the, the, the stain and the mar that we put upon him. It was ours. That he was wearing. And we looked upon him like it was his fault. Is that incredible? That's stunning to me when I think about it. That's stunning to me. Rejected him is what we've done. We've rejected him. You know, if you're not a believer this morning, you will continue to hurl this rejection at him. You continue to do that, even at this time. Your opinion of him is that he's not worthy of your attention. Your prideful rejection is broken, is broken his heart. And he died for that. But you continue to be so if you don't know him as your savior. You can't reject him forever. The, the reality is, as I said last time we were together, every knee will bow before him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Yours and mine. And I hope it's because we're willing to do it. And I hope it's out of love for him that we do it. But there are some who continue to reject this one who's died in their place. He was rejected. He was abused. We have this in verse number 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. Like sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. Hold your place here and go to Matthew chapter 
27. Matthew 27. Verse number 27. Handful of verses here. You recall this scene, I'm sure. And the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head, and they read in his right hand, they knelt before him, mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him, took the reed, and began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to be crucified. Add one more verse to this. Mark says these words. Listen to them, because we don't read these ones too often. Just one verse. Mark 14.65 says, Some began to spit at him, and to blindfold him, and to beat him with their fists, and to say to him, Prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. He was oppressed, the word said. He was driven like an animal to tax, harass, tyrannize. He was afflicted, looked down on, browbeat, dealt harshly with, excessive force, hurt. They demand, their demands put great pressure on him. They were the taskmaster, master, they were the slave driver, and yet he offered no self-defense. He uttered no words. He didn't protest. His treatment was unfair. His enemies were cruel. And yet in Romans 5.10 it says we were his enemies. You find that alarming? In that context, we were his enemies. We have a, a theological term. We call it vicarious. Vicarious is a term where somebody stands in your place. And we reference that in reference to Christ. And we like the fact that in the fact that he took our place on the cross, it was a vicarious sacrifice for us. But there's another picture of vicarious I give to you today. In the fact that these enemies stood about him and beat him and ridiculed him and abused him as they did. Those soldiers also stood in our place too. In a vicarious way, they did what we would have done as well. That's alarming to me, folks, to think that if I was there, I'd be part of that crowd. We would be. Now, I want to ask you something as I go along. I know this is, this is a difficult passage, but does not the sacrifice of Christ look more beautiful to you now? When you consider who he was dying for, that he still went ahead and did it. For all that we piled upon him in humiliation and ridicule and abuse and rejection, he loved us still. Then we have the shame. The shame, it's not just the physical suffering he suffered, but that mental side, the shame. His grave, it said in Isaiah 53 verse 9, his grave was assigned with wicked men. Yeah, he was with the rich man in his death. 
He was numbered with the transgressors, verse 12 says. Now, when it came to his death, he was numbered with two thieves. Any passerby could have gone by and said, three thieves. As far as they're concerned, he was numbered among them. That would be a, a, a shameful way to die, would it not? Punishment for one sin. Yeah, but when it came to his burial, we say, oh no, but this, this makes up for it. He was buried among the rich. Joseph of Arimathea offered his tomb. He wasn't just thrown out in the trash. He was, he was buried in, a, in the tomb of a rich man. Isn't that more honorable? Not to the average person that considered the rich to be arrogant. And guess who he was numbered with there? Some looked upon him as a thief and a criminal. Some looked upon him as if he was arrogant. Too proud, too arrogant. Even in his death, he had to have a nice place. You can't win with people, can you? You can't win with people. He died with those who deserved to be punished. He was buried with those who were considered arrogant. He was numbered with the transgressors. Picture this, if you will. If we took a group of people and numbered off all the sinners and put them all on this side, he was in that group. We numbered him with them. We counted him among them. Yet, he had not done any sin. Whose sin was he bearing there in that group? Was it not ours? That shame was ours. He bore it for us. So when I, I walk through this little section here today, we talk about the shame that he endured, the abuse that he endured, the rejection that he endured, the rejection, the humiliation, the insult. Isaiah adds to it in another chapter, his appearance was marred more than any man. And if his appearance physically was marred that way, how much more was the anguish of his soul? How much more was the anguish in his mind for that which he endured for us? You see, when I come to a cross, or I come to a communion service, and I consider what my Savior did for me, I can't, I can't fathom that kind of love. Can you? That he should do this for us. It makes this remembrance the most beautiful thing in our entire calendar, folks. When we come before his table and remember that he did this for us because he loves us. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. So I bring you to this thought as we get ready to share this. Because the closer I come to look at Christ, the more I see myself and what I've done for him, and still I see how much he loves me. And I pray that that will be your reflection here this moment and this morning. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, don't give it another moment. Rush to him. That's what he's died for, right? That you might know him. That you might see forgiveness of sins. That you might be able to stand there and say, He did this for me. He did this for me. Don't let another moment go by. If there's something perhaps in your life, we're going to go into prayer right now. There's something there that needs to be made right. Do it now. Do it now. What a perfect time to talk to the Savior. What can you ever present before Him that's more ugly than the way He was treated? 
He loves you. And he's proven it, hasn't he? 